This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Thabiti Anyabwile. All right, so Thabiti, today we're going to take on another foundational question. Basically, the idea of tribalism in politics, or put another way, politics as uh, team sport. Oh, I like tribalism. That sounds fun. <laughs> Depend- yeah, it depends, right? Like, yeah. So, so talk to us, man. Why, why is this an issue? Why, why talk about uh, tribalism in politics? Yeah. So one good starting point, uh, at least in American history, is uh, Federalist Number 10, right? So this series of essays um, defending the kind of new U.S. Constitution. Uh, James Madison, one of the primary authors, he writes Federalist 10, and he takes on what's called the question of faction. Um, he defines a faction as, quote, a number of citizens, whether amounting to a minority or majority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest, adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. Um, so a faction is a team of sorts, a team with common interests and interests that are adverse to the interests of others. That doesn't, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but of course it's just you're an interest group in politics. Um, the founders were worried about this idea of faction. Um, they were worried that factions would form across class lines or lines of belief. Um, and they even wrote the Constitution um, without political parties in mind for this reason. You, you, some would call that an act of naivety because, of course, parties emerged almost immediately afterwards. But, they, but of course, that is what they did. Now, um, do, do you think most Americans realize that? That the Constitution was framed without parties in mind? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I learned it in like history class, but I have no idea kind of if everybody. Yeah, it's, it's almost as if, you know, you take your civics course and you get ingrained with this idea of a two-party system. Yeah. And, and you think that's there at the founding. And, and you think that we must be in these two tribes yeah. uh, in that sense. So I wonder if it's helpful um, to, to sort of help people understand that actually the framers quite intentionally took a philosophical approach that sort of... Um, at least minimize the importance and the centrality of, hmm. of what we today would call tribalism. Yeah. They were very concerned mm. about it. I think most historians would agree on that. So in the original electoral college system, the top vote getter became president and the second place person became vice president. Clearly not written with parties in mind because of course the first election in which there are two parties, 1796, um, is um, you know where basically the top vote getter is John Quincy Adams of the Federalists, and the second uh, place person is from the other party, Thomas Jefferson of the Democratic Republicans, and they end up having to serve together, which is super awkward. Um, eventually, the Constitution is amended uh, to basically account for the reality that parties have emerged, mm. and so it happened mm. um, despite that suspicion. Mm. Today, parties are a major source of identity. Um, there are studies which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, which talk about this phenomenon called negative partisanship. What it basically means is, if I'm a member of a political party, increasingly, I'm more likely to vote for my party, uh, not because I like my person, but because I am afraid of or fearful of uh, the other person. Mm. Right. So, there was a um, there was a uh, there was a, uh, a an admittedly liberal podcast I listened to the other day where they made light of the fact that there was a poll done recently where it turns out there was like one Republican in the Midwest who had never heard of Donald Trump. And they imagined what a conversation with this person would be like. And they asked, you know, the person play acting in this role. So can I, you're, this is astounding to me, you've never heard of Donald Trump, they say, um, but who did you vote for? And they said, oh, well, whoever was running against Hillary, I mean the emails, 
right? And that was the joke. But actually, on both sides, you think about kind of people on the left, similarly, they might have said, uh, you know, whoever Hillary is is not an issue. What matters to me is I'm voting against uh, Donald Trump. And so that is increasingly a part of kind of the hardening of partisanship and of tribes. Um, and it's not just parties. It's also movements within the parties, right? So the biggest ones, as you obviously are, the conservative movement on the right of the spectrum and the progressive or the liberal movement on the left side. There are minor offshoots of these, um, libertarians, socialists, uh, groups generally that are organized around a set of ideas in political life and the belief that those ideas should prevail over alternative ideas. Um, so whether you call yourself a libertarian or a conservative or a Republican or a Democrat, uh, parties and political movements are a major source of identity. So with that kind of as the backdrop, um, I think the, the motivating question for our episode today is, uh, you know, Thabiti, where do Christians come into this? Why does this kind of fact of political party or movement as identity, why does that present a challenge to the Christian? Well, it presents a challenge in part because I think ever since the fall, and certainly since Genesis 10 and the Tower of Babel, um, fallen human beings have been tribal, essentially tribal. Uh, you read the, the record of the Table of Nations, and, and what you do is you see this sort of um, differentiating in the human family of, of people who then become known uh, as families and clans and nations according to their their ethnic groups, and, and identity grows up around that. Um, this this sort of tribalism that we're talking about in its negative uh, manifestation is, is just simply an echo of the fall and the alienation that enters in at the fall, uh, an alienation with God and an alienation with each other. Uh, and that alienation just keeps getting expressed uh, in, in various ways. It's a problem for us uh, not merely because of the alienation and reality of that, but it's a problem for Christians uh, because it's, it's the gospel that is meant precisely to reverse the Lord's judgment at mm -hmm. Babel, where he separates us into this tribalism. The gospel is meant to take what was fractured at Babel and at Pentecost, heal it, and, and to gather people from every tribe, language, and nation and make them a new people, right? Mm -hmm. So when you raise this question about tribalism and identity, uh, that, that's not merely a, a political, pragmatic kind of topic. That, that For the Christian, that should go right to the heart of who we think we are uh, in the world, and it should go right to the heart to identity, and, and it should really put us at odds in some fundamental mm -hmm. way with every other tribe uh, mm -hmm. as, as we ally ourselves with Christ uh, and we are known by his name, right? So um, this whole topic just goes right at the heart of, well, what is the gospel doing? And what is Christ doing in creating a people? And how should we then think of ourselves and, and, and consequently act in the world now that we are this one new man with this one new humanity in Christ? Mm. So, so Thabiti, how exactly have Christians engaged in politics uh, in this country? Like, how have they navigated that question? Uh in various ways, yeah. Uh, sometimes poorly, sometimes well. So you'll get some Christian groups uh, or professing Christian groups that are entirely isolationist. Um, so uh, our, our friends on on farms in Pennsylvania, you mm -hmm. know, say, "Yo, we, we're checking out. You know, we're, we're we're not doing this at all." Right? That'd be kind of a uh, what some might consider an extreme mm -hmm. uh, sort of point of view. And then on the other uh, other side of the spectrum, you're going to get Christians who are just full bore, full tilt, completely immersed. 
who really do blend their political identity with their religious identity, such that you know the two aren't really separable for them. You can call them sort of God and country Christians or, mm. or folks of that sort. Um, and so that's the other end of the spectrum is this full immersion. Somewhere in the middle, you get a, a range of options among Christians that are, you know, what somewhat isolationist, but maybe selective on particular issues, right? So you might think of single issue voters yeah. in that way. Um, to folks who, who have a maybe a higher view of calling and vocation and would argue that Christians should indeed, as a matter of vocation, uh, be in these circles, be in politics and be engaging. Uh, and, and that as Christians in churches, that's part of what it means to be salt and light in the world. Um, and, and with an eye toward perhaps slowing spiritual decay hmm. uh, or even in more sort of uh, grand visions, transforming the culture, Christianizing the culture. So this gets bound up with not only identity, but for some Christians with eschatology, uh, what, what they think will happen in the world before Jesus comes back. Um, and so there's just been a mix of things. Perhaps most helpful for, for many people in terms of a framework would be Niebuhr's uh, Christ and Culture, whether you are sort of Christ over culture or Christ transforming culture or Christ against culture, I think what most people would come to recognize is a kind of posture that Christians, a various set of postures that Christians might express um, toward the political uh, and toward and, and express as their kind of political identity. Yeah. So what guidance does the Bible give us on this question? I mean, you know, there are there are no democracies in the Bible, and there are no political parties, or even, you could argue, political movements. Maybe I shouldn't go that far. But, you know, no no democracies in the Bible, at least, that as we understand them. Um, what principles should we turn to in terms of thinking about our participation in politics and in the movements of politics? That's a really good question and, and an interesting framing, because while I agree that there are no sort of political movements in the Bible or mm -hmm. political parties, and we're not looking at governments in the ancient world akin to our modern democracy. Right. Nevertheless, in the historical context, there are such things, right? Yeah. Uh, and so in Jesus's day and, and in Israel, you're going to have zealots, for example, mm -hmm. uh, who are opposing Roman occupation and, and seeking to overthrow uh, Roman occupation of Israel. And that's in the background of a lot of interaction, for example, that Jesus has with scribes and Pharisees. And they say, hey, you know, should you pay taxes? Well, that's a, a tremendously right. political question yeah. uh, in the context. So it's, it's there in the context, even if it isn't there in sort of the explicit statements and, and explication of the scripture. Um, and so I think there are a number of things that the, the, the Bible would teach us with regard to this question of tribalism in particular. Uh, the first thing that it teaches us very clearly, uh, we've already alluded to, in places like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, uh, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12 to 27, is, is that as Christians, we, we are one, and, and Christ is our identity. So if we're going to have a tribe, that's got to be our tribe. That Christ has got to be our tribe. He's gotta, we got to wear his jersey. We're on team Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, and that needs to come through as the most important thing about us and, and our identity. Uh, the second thing kind of follows from that, and, and again is, is stated pretty explicitly in Scripture in places like 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 9, and that is we've got to be wary of divisions between Christians. Mm -hmm. I think we often think of the Bible's exhortation to unity in Christ and its warnings 
against division that we often think of those only in terms of uh, false teaching mm. certainly true of that or in terms of interpersonal conflict right but we don't sort of recognize that the tribalism that's a part of the world system and and is just really consistent with worldliness according to first Corinthians chapter 3 that also is a threat to the kind of unity we're meant to maintain uh, as, as we regard each other as one body, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, all those kinds of things. Um, and so the Bible guides us in, in sort of instructing us to put some fences up against uh, this kind of division. So the saddest thing happening in the church right now, Nick, mm. um, is that the church, for all intents and purposes, looks a whole lot like the worldly tribal parties um, that, that exist in our country. Yeah. Um, you have churches that in their character are predominantly or almost exclusively Republican mm-hmm. or Democratic or conservative or liberal, yeah. and the tween shall not meet. Yeah. Um, and that I think we have to learn to see that as a tearing apart of Christ's body. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I, w- I would say real quickly is that yet there is a kind of division that Jesus does bring. Mm. So we think, for example, in Luke 12, verses 49 to 51, um, Jesus says, I brought a sword. Divide, you know, fathers and sons and so on and so Mm. forth. Um, So there is a division that that we're to participate in, but it is a a division from the world. It It is a division not from each other, according to worldly categories, but it's a division from the world. Uh, in order to sort of more deeply immerse ourselves in, in Christian Christian kind of category. And so so the Bible just keeps warning us. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 20, mm-hmm. watch out for those who uh, cause division among you. Titus chapter 3, verses uh, 10 and 11, warn a divisive person once, warn them twice. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that they are warped and serving their own self-interest. Um, and, and that goes back to your your reading from the Federalist Papers. Uh, the concern about the development of groups that were seeking their own interests over and against the welfare of the whole. Uh, and I think if anybody should be modeling that high aspiration from the Federalist Papers, uh, it should be the church. Hmm. Because we should look not only after our own uh, needs, but also for the needs uh, of others. And that should be reflected in a unity and empathy, a common shared identity over and against the world not determined by the world. And this makes me think of something, too, which is in politics, it's pretty common to refer to, quote unquote, evangelicals as a block Mm -hmm. of voters. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but wonder, maybe success for us is when that is no longer true, Mm. when you can't speak of the, quote, evangelical vote, that the evangelicals aren't thought of as defending their own interests Mm -hmm. so much as defending a, a broader, more common interest that goes beyond faction. Um, that is a you know that's a really interesting no, point. No, that's what that's well stated, Nick, because because there should be if we take our Bible seriously, hmm. um, both in terms of how it describes us and and how we apply it, yeah. we should look really weird to the world. Yeah. So there should be a kind of unpredictability about yeah. how all these people called Christians are going to act on various things, um, because we're not reasoning in the in the sort of categories and certainly not in a sort of tribal pattern of, of sort of just straight down the party line. Um, we, there, there should be this mercurial, unpredictable mm. variance in, a, yeah. in our political behavior because we're driven by a, a biblical consideration of what's good for all 
Uh, and that's going to be at odds with a partisan consideration of what's good for us. Yep. Yep. No, really, really well said. So I think the Bible is, is sort of enjoining us and calling us to and inviting us to this really robust unity in Christ and to have that sort of form our identity. But just think about the times we're in right now. Mm. Uh, where the church seems to be significantly divided along sort of political lines and, and opinions about candidates. So I think that begs a question, Nick, or raises a question for us, Nick, that I, I want to pose to you then. Um, when should Christians divide rather than unify mm. in these sort of political affiliations and considerations? Yeah, that's a no. great question. Um, the answer to that question was easier for me like 10 years ago. And mm. I have a very formative experience here, which is sort of as a person who leaned left, I found myself at um, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, wonderful, faithful church that all of us have some background and exposure with. I spent eight years there. And because it's Capitol Hill Baptist Church, I mean, gosh, in the mid-2000s, half the people I knew worked for the George W. Bush administration. Mm. The other half worked for Republicans on the Hill. And I cannot overstate the benefit of being in the minority and just having to think every day about unity. Mm. And the, the broad answer to your question in that context was most of the time, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We need to basically say, oh, isn't this interesting? I believe this and you believe that, but we're united in Christ and mm -hmm. that's wonderful. I think in the current moment, uh, no, without saying anything about CHBC, I think I'd struggle a little bit more with that mm -hmm. because we're a bit more divided now, right? So I think, um, there is a question of when do you kind of make the conversation? When do you turn up the volume of the conversation? Well, and, and actually, I, I will say this. I think there should be a bit more cacophony and a bit more debate. Mm. I'm not sure there should be a schism, mm. right? Mm -hmm. But I think there should be like, I'm going to speak my mind about what I th where I think this is, and I'm going to hope that you're going to respect where I'm coming from and that we're going to have a good dialogue about Amen. it and vice versa. Um, so there's actually, I think, a lot of room for division in in debate before we ever get to this question of division as a body. Right, and, and I think the problem is we, we get to division as a body really quickly hmm. without ever having had the debate, yep. without ever having that iron sharpening iron kind of experience. And so my, my, my answer to that question would be a lot like yours, and that is to say hmm. uh, to sort of divide the body ought to be an abhorrent thought to us. So much so mm -hmm. that um, we, we should see it as a, as a matter of last resort. Um, because in, 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 many, in many respects, this uh, sort of schismatic tendency lies about the gospel. And mm -hmm. it, lies, it lies about what Christ has done yeah. uh, in our lives. And if we're doing that in a, uh, an uncritical, unthinking, reflexive kind of way, uh, I, I, I would hope that Christians learn, would learn to be horrified by that. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing I think it, it, that, it, that requires is precisely what you're saying. You know, we say around here sometimes, we, we want to be the congregation that can have the conversation. Right. Right? And so there's a set of competencies there that have to do with listening and speaking, yeah. um, truth and honesty and, and empathizing uh, and entering into each other's lives and experiences that frankly, I, I'm just I'm concerned that way too many churches and Christians lack those competencies, which is why it's easier to divide about these things, when really what we should be doing is seeing this conflict as an invitation to prove our unity in Christ uh, and to prove the glue of the gospel is holding us together. I'll say just one other thing about that. You talk about the error of 
um, you say we were trying to have the conversation. Um, one error is dividing. Another error is kind of shoving it under the That's rug. Right. That's right. right. So That's right. we won't have the conversation. Let's just talk about what we agree on, the gospel. Now, on the surface, that sounds good. Mm -hmm. I think what it means is it entrenches whatever the majority's That's preferences right. are. And I, I don't care what kind of majority you're talking about. That's right. Right? Whether the majority, progressive, majority, conservative, et cetera. It just basically says, well, that's our default now, mm -hmm. and we're not going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So those guys sort of win by default, whoever they are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another kind of error for a church no, to guard I, against. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. And again, I think, I think we're instructed... Um, by the section that you read from the Federalist Papers, right, which is putting this emphasis on the the common real, the the, the commonwealth, the the common sort of blessing and goodness of of all. That suggests to us a, a place where Christians might have to divide, because if 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 there are a band of Christians that are mm -hmm. acting in ways, behaving politically in ways that seem to be self-seeking, and seem to be really causing significant detriment uh, to others. Um, in a way that just sort of violates the scripture's commands to love. Um, well, we might have to draw some lines there. We, we might have to sort of say, hold on, um, th this, this is so repugnant to scripture. Uh, and, it and it needs to be things that are clear in scripture. This is so repugnant to scripture in the gospel that actually you're behaving unchristianly at this point. You're not behaving like you're part of the Christian tribe in that way. Um, and, and that would be a time to sort of consider at least public reproof, uh, but but quite possibly separating. All right, Thabiti, let me go to the danger zone on yes, this please, one then. Yes, please, please. I was laying it out there for you. Is there anybody doing that right now? Yes. So some examples? Well, I, I think that the, the sort of, that quarter of evangelicalism that is intractably allied to our current president um, at the expense of a lot of people in the country with reasoning that is repugnant to scripture. Mm -hmm. So so I think, for example, a lot of the immigration debate is informed by not not even quiet, but blatant racist and prejudicial kind of reasoning. Doesn't recognize that these people are made in the image of God, uh, but instead vilifies and, and, and cascades these people. We, we should not be standing with that. No, no Christian of, of, of sort of any biblical maturity and understanding should be should be standing with that yeah. um and so we're some of these divisions we're seeing in the church i think are legitimately caused uh by parties in the church um that are acting in ways that are contrary to scripture and even in some cases contrary to brothers and sisters in christ well and let me just let me let me go out one step further from you there um the beauty which is and I'll, I'll i wonder what you think of this but so to me the kind of best example of this right are many of the members of the so-called kind of evangelical advisory council to mm. the president. Mm. And I think what's interesting about that is because they're sort of part of this official thing or official-ish thing, you'll see kind of either silence or rationalization mm. sort of at sort of certain moments, mm -hmm. right? When the president does something a little strange um, and so they'll either be totally quiet or they'll kind of say, well, here's my not so great reading of scripture as to why mm -hmm. this is exactly the right thing. Mm -hmm. And um, you have to think that tribalism, literally there's even a mini tribalism of I'm on this council, I'm yeah. on this team. Yeah. And so I got to defend my guy. Yeah. So let's apply this a little bit, Dabiti. Um, I wonder um, how should then the Christian think about um, association with or support of a figure like the president or someone else. So just to be... Uh, 
you know, how should we think about um, lending our support to a particular movement or a party um, without making it look like we are of that movement or that party? Well, I, I think that's, you're, you're, in your question, you're stating the principle, mm, right? Yeah. So we want a, a principled participation and partnership um, along lines that are consistent with the scripture, right? So that part of what I think we want to avoid is self-identifying in, in, in categories or in ways that are sort of greater or more pronounced than our identification with Christ. So to say, mm. I am a Democrat, um, it's probably to say too much Yeah. if, if Christ is the main thing, yeah. right? Um, and so better, and this is not just semantics in my mind, but it's an illustration of, of the principle, better to say, I am a Christian who in this election voted for a Democratic candidate, mm-hmm. right? Now, why all those qualifications? Well, we're trying to put Christ first. Yep. That's our main identity. Yep. Uh, we're recognizing that in this election, it might be really different than last election or the elections coming. And indeed, the parties might be very different, you know, in a couple of elections time, right? Yep. Um, and and the selection or the voting for a particular candidate for particular reasons, I think, is is pushing us to be, uh, again, not just partisans who, who are sort of voting straight down the ballot, but thinkers, Christian thinkers, who, who are attempting to navigate the world. We're never going to have a candidate apart from Jesus who satisfies all our requirements, right? Yep. So that's not what we're talking about. Uh, but we should also never vote for a candidate uh, whom we're willing to sort of just overlook completely in terms of um, significant moral and political problems. So we've got to be selective. And, and that's slower and cumbersome and messy, but that's the right work for the Christian in, in a fallen world, I think. And just to add on to that, I think if I were to sort of transport that into this time and place, mm-hmm. um, I might say, if you're a voter, you in this last election, no matter who you voted for, likely you the right posture would have been to be sort of a reluctant voter. Mm. Um, mm. I voted for Hillary Clinton, and I can let me list for you all the reasons I was reluctant to do so. Mm-hmm. I voted for Donald Trump. Let me list for you all the reasons I was reluctant to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Like choosing to vote for one or the other isn't itself, I don't, I don't think you could say you're in sin voting for one or the other. Mm-hmm. I think you do need to say, I do think it matters what's in your heart when you make that decision. And then when it comes to sort of not vote, the, the stuff that happens between voting, the kind of making a statement in support of or against, it's how kind of full-throated or complete uh, is that support, right? Like I support the man Donald Trump or I like what he did on that day on this issue. Yeah. And I don't like what he did on this other day on this issue. So so let me say I, I, I agree with what you're saying mm. and I'm troubled by what we're saying. Huh. Because I think that that kind of calculus um, leaves a lot of room for Christians to act in ways that are not principled. Huh. Okay, say right? more about that. Well, it, it is to, I mean, it is in one sense to sort of enter into the political arena thinking um, maybe too much in pragmatic terms. I mean, yeah. We're going to have to have some Marriage pragmatism. Marriage is a convenience That's everywhere. Right. That's right. Yep. And so we're going to have to have some pragmatism, but mm-hmm. I, I pray that it's married to principle mm-hmm. uh, such that uh, we really are enabled to sort of look at an election, as, as many Christians did in this last election, and said, actually, I can't vote for either one of these rascals, yeah. right? Um, and, and again, we don't want to bind each other's consciences in the wrong way, but I just want to sort of have that category in there that we are, we're being principled about our pragmatism, and, and we, we hit 
we're probably healthier if we develop a clear sense of the boundaries yeah. uh, in terms of you know how much of that kind of uh, marriage of convenience uh, on on what kinds of issues can I um, can I do that with? And this is why I think the the whole issue of being a single issue voter is so appealing to mo- to many Christians. Hmm. It's an easy way to define a deal breaker, right? Yep. Uh, it's an easy way to yeah. sort of uh, articulate a principle, a conviction. Yeah. Um, now I think it it oversimplifies the world, um, but but that that idea of having some principles in there that are creating borders for us, and within those borders, then being pragmatic. Um, yeah. I, that's that's what I would want to commit. There, to there might be a category, for example, of um, this person or this movement or what they represent um, is so objectionable that even the individual things I agree with them on aren't worth it. Mm-hmm. Essentially, is mm-hmm. that, that's what I'm hearing no, you say. I, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, or or they're even if they're not objectionable in their person. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're holding in the mix of views some views, some yeah. political or, or, or uh, policy positions that are so objectionable yeah. that I can't ride with them. So and I actually have one practical example of that that just comes from, so I, I met a person a few months ago. Um, they work for a Republican member of Congress on the Hill. And, um, you know, believer, didn't vote for Trump, not terribly jazzed about mm-hmm. Trump, but of course was very excited about the um, tax bill that they mm-hmm. passed. And that's a topic for another day. But I remember bringing up some controversial thing the president had done and he sort of he sort of said to me if in effect well you know we're we're getting these things done on policy do you really kind of expect us to be out there condemning him every time he does one of these things and i think that's the danger the that's danger right. is once you've decided right. you kind of have to make even alliance of convenience then the idea of continually condemning despite that alliance becomes exhausting and you just want to give up doing it. That's, right. That's the sense I've gotten from a lot of the kind of uh, allies, even if of convenience of, of this president, right? And I think it can happen in any dynamic. It's just, this is That's who's right. president right now. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So last question for us, um, just to bring it home. Um, how should the Christian um, examine their own hearts with respect to this, to guard against this human tendency toward tribalism? Yeah. This may sound cliche to people, uh, some people, and, and that's probably an indication that they should think harder about it. But one question you might ask is, is, is this vote I'm casting the, the, vet, the best vote I can cast to reflect what the Lord sort of wills and wants in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is, 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 I mean, you know, people will kind of laugh at this, but is, is it, there's a what would Jesus do kind of, Thing at work, uh, in, ought to be in our political behavior, in our alliances, and, and the identities that we take on, uh, and so that that would be one question: is is am I now acting politically in a way uh, that would honor the Lord and clearly portray the Lord's heart uh, on the sort of maximum set of issues and concerns that I'm that I'm engaging? Yeah. How would you have people think about that? So I have, I, have a, I, have a, I have a brief story to tell about this, which is, so there's another study on negative partisanship, which I was just astounded by. We'll put it in the show notes. It's, it's the sort of famous red shirt, blue shirt study. Yeah, classic. They gave children sort of red shirts and blue shirts, and then they showed them some pictures of other people who some of them wore red shirts, one shirt, one, some wore blue shirts, and just asked them some questions. And consistently, without ever being told you're on the red team or you're on the blue team or whatever, the children would say nicer things about the people in their own shirt group mm-hmm. and less nice things about the children who aren't. Mm-hmm. I say this just as a way of saying 
it's sort of like all sin in our lives. We should be skeptical of the human heart. Mm. And our hearts want to identify with tribes, you know, adverse, as Madison put it, adverse to the interests of others. Mm -hmm. So I think we tend to overestimate our ability to kind of rise above it all and not see party and be, you know, uh, kind of uh, neutral. Mm -hmm. And I think we should be skeptical of ourselves. Good. I think that's the thing the Christian needs to do is, am I really doing this uh, for the right reasons to honor Christ? Or am I doing it because I'm part of a team and I feel part of mm -hmm. a team? I think mm -hmm. that's something we need to think about. So, so one, one other question. That's a brilliant question, brother. One other question then that kind of flows from that, for me at least, is uh, have I really considered the sort of views and needs of other Christians who might sort of identify differently from me in this political election? And is that in any way included in my calculation, in, in my voting behavior, right? So mm -hmm. if, we're, if we're trying to act like Christians, if that's our tribe, um, and, and we're meant to sort of regard Christians, fellow Christians, uh, much as we regard ourselves, at some place that should be reflected in how we're voting, right? Yeah. Is, there, is there empathy and solidarity in this vote with other Christians who may be expressing other needs uh, and should be a part of who I think of when I think about the common good? And just one note on that, uh, Thabidius, of course, the wonderful thing about thinking with the Christian tribe in mind is the Christian tribe is all believers and all the Lord may have who may be called and we have no mm. idea who they are. Amen. And mm -hmm. so really it forces us to take a completely expansive view of all of humanity Amen. when we think about how we vote and yeah. how we how we act in politics. Puts us behind Rawls' veil. In, I know, in I was, I was just it. about to say that, of course, I'm sure. Amen. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Amen. Well, why don't uh, you close us in prayer? All right. Father, we do ask you for wisdom, and we rejoice at your word, which tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask, and you would give it, and you'd not chastise us or upbraid us. We praise you for that. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are our wisdom. Mm -hmm. God has made you wisdom for us. And, and so we look to you. We, we don't want to be taken captive by um, empty philosophy, vain deceit. But we want to be captured by you. We want more and more of our minds and our hearts um, just chained to you, O oh Lord. And so help us, Lord, in this area of our discipleship and our witness to be faithful to you, to be known primarily as Christians, and mm. for that to be what that means to be determined by the Bible and to work out, O oh Lord, um, this faith, this precious faith uh, in this arena in such a way that we demonstrate that our highest allegiance is to you and not to other tribes, O oh Lord. And give us a, an expansive concern for all of humanity made in your image um, that they might know the grace that is in your son. Do this, O oh Lord, for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.